Hey, it's Nick Austin, and on this edition of the Detroit Today podcast, with the UAW strike against the big three automakers entering its first week, a lot of people are wondering what the short-term and long-term economic effect could be on all of us, especially here in Detroit, but even nationwide, as we're not quite sure when things may settle up. Right now, negotiations are ongoing, but the sides seem like they're still pretty far apart. So what does that mean for the rest of us? A little bit later, we're going to take a look at how income inequality plays a role into this, especially with it being one of the things UAW President Sean Fain and his members bring up as a reason for the strike. With record profits, there should be record distribution for the workers, they say. But first up, we start with Gabe Ehrlich, an economist with the University of Michigan, where he forecasts the U.S. and Michigan economies. Gabe, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks so much. I'm glad you're here because one question I think a lot of us have been asking and I'm hearing even out there are, what are the economic concerns for us here in Southeast Michigan, as well as the United States generally, if this strike were to go on? Can we start with the short term and then move to the long term? Sure. Yeah. You know, our analysis is that the spillover effects of the strike will start out limited, but that they will accumulate over time as as the strike goes on. So, you know, right now we're seeing that there have been some spillovers. You know, you you already see some suppliers uh, announcing layoffs. Um, So certainly the strike is being felt in the local economy. um, And that's in addition to the the workers who are already striking. Um, But we expect those effects to accumulate over time as the strike goes on. Mm. So you're saying we're already seeing things right now. I'd wonder what specifically, like what metrics or facts or information are you looking at that's showing this effect? You mentioned suppliers. What are the specific numbers that you're seeing and details that you're looking at? Well, yeah, you know, you do see some layoffs um, are already in effect at suppliers, right. and then some are announced to take place, you know, over, over the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, so far, and, and, you know, our analysis at the outset was, that it will take some time for suppliers to really get in a position where uh, they have to lay off workers. Um, and you know, it's it's still a tight labor market. So we think that suppliers are gonna do what they can to avoid layoffs, but over time it becomes tougher and tougher. And especially um, you know, if there are additional strike targets announced, it will become tougher and we would expect to see you know, more effects along the supply chain. So you know, uh, right now we, we are seeing some reports of layoffs. It's, it's not, um, you know, so many jobs right now, but you always, you know, uh, feel for people who are, who are, you know, experiencing layoffs. Um, so I don't mean to downplay that experience. It's, you know, it's a, it's a very disruptive experience. It's a tough time right now, but we expect that effect to accumulate over time as the strike goes on and uh, as more targets are announced. Yeah. You know, this makes me wonder about the cause of these layoffs. We're going to get into the party specifically in a moment, but you mentioned these layoffs here, and it has me wondering, is this something that these suppliers are doing in anticipation of a protracted work stoppage? Have they hit the point where they literally cannot pay for their workers? Is it somewhere in between? Do we have an idea as whether this is just fear of it going longer or actual issues with uh, monetary income right now? You, you know, I obviously that's, you know, um, going to depend on the specific supplier and right. it's, you know, d- depends on, on specific businesses. But, you know, what I will say is, is from our perspective, I would think that, you know, with unemployment still below 4%, that, you know, suppliers and, and really any employer wants to keep employees mm-hmm. if they can, right? Because 
it, you know, it, it is tough to hire still. Um, you know, there is there is some evidence that the labor market is cooling off some, but it's still a tight labor market. Yeah, you so, know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that's factoring into the timing of this occurring, right? Because we talk about record profits, we talk about a tight labor market, and so theoretically there was a lot to gain for everybody. However, the strike, you know, if we feel like things are unfair, this might be the time to go on strike. So I kind of want to look at the party specifically, starting with the workers, since they are the ones on strike. Uh, only a portion of them are on strike, but we mentioned some more may go on strike a little bit later. Currently, striking workers, of course, they don't receive their paychecks for work, but they do receive about $500 a week in strike pay, which on average replaces about 40% of their lost wages. With all of this, they say they're prepared to strike, but Gabe, tell me, how long do you think they can go for? Well, you know, it, it depends how many workers are striking. Mm -hmm. So I believe the UAW strike fund, you know, coming into the strike was about $825 million dollars. Uh, you know, obviously, the more workers who are striking, you know, the faster the strike fund will be depleted. But, you know, you know so a lot just depends on the specific uh, strategy that the UAW takes. Right, right. And but also that is reduced income. And I mean, in our current climate and here in Michigan, you know, $500 a week, not necessarily a lot for you to try to keep oh. up a full family. So I got to believe oh. that that would also cause some tension there. Is there any insight that we have into how the UAW might try to uh, uh, lessen that burden? Well, you, you know, one thing to say, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, that $500 a week doesn't go so far in, in, you know, today's economy. And that's another reason we expect spillover effects from the strike to, to you know, accumulate over time is that, you know, if you're only getting $500 a week, uh, you know, you might, you, you probably will need to cut back on some of the usual, you know, things you would spend money on, you know, you might skip going out to eat for dinner, you might, you know, skip uh, spending money in your local community on various things. And, you know, that that in turn spills over into local communities here in Michigan. So, you know, that's another reason that we think that over time, the spillovers, you know, will, will grow from the strike. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, mitigating those effects uh, for, for the workers, you know, there's, it's, it's a tough situation. Uh, you know, I, th I think that, you know, workers realize that, that, you know, when they go on strike, this is what's going to happen. Um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, even if you know in advance, it's still, it's tough to prepare for something like that. Right. But meanwhile, car companies also stand to have a lot, if not more to lose, considering, again, making great profits. Uh, profits, able to sell cars out there, price. If you're making record making profits, I understand that maybe car companies have more in the bank. Maybe. You can tell me if they do or don't. But they also risk in a hot market not being able to make up that income. Do we have any idea how long the car companies can last with this kind of labor stoppage before it just gets uh, untenable for them? You, you know, I I think it's 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 tough to say it, uh, you know, a lot depends on, well, you know, what's, what's, where are the negotiations? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that's true on both sides. So, you know, obviously we're not privy to, you know, um, all of the details of the negotiations. And so it's, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's tough to say, well, you know, can, can they withstand it? it well, it's compared to what, right. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, we're certainly, you know, watching to see what, you know, happens in the negotiations we see you know obviously in canada ford was um you know able to make a deal uh you know with unifor which is the canadian union um so we'll see you know what that means for 
for the UAW as well. Uh, a question I have seen from folks are about the consumers, especially those buying cars. Do we have any idea of when we would expect to see an impact for people who are actually looking for cars right now in the market? Yeah, you, you know, I, I think a lot depends. It depends on the model, you know, that you're looking for, the make that you're looking for. Um, inventories are tight, you know, from a historical perspective, you know, and, you know, as you mentioned, it, you know, we, we went through a period, a prolonged period of tight supply chains and supply chain disruptions in the auto industry. And we were finally you know, making progress right. in, in terms of, of putting that behind us. And, you know, the automakers were rebuilding inventories, but they're still tight on a historical uh, basis. So, you know, I, I think, um, like I say, it depends on, you know, the, the individual situation, um, but it's not going to help is what I can say. Yeah, yeah. We are speaking again with Gabe Ehrlich about the potential ramifications of this uh, work stoppage, this strike from the UAW, both short-term and long-term. Gabe, before we get into Detroit specifically, as I know you've done some research and insight into that, I do have an idea again, or I'm wondering again, when people are making money, uh, a labor stoppage uh, can cause a situation, I would think, where you're unable to make that money back do we know or do we have an idea? Do you have an idea of how long this could go before you may start reaching a point of irreparable harm in terms of uh, either the economy or these businesses and uh, workers individually? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, in our most recent forecast for the state of Michigan economy, we assumed a company wide strike, which, you know, we haven't seen, but we, we assumed um uh, experienced something along the lines of what we saw in 2019, which was a company-wide strike against a single one of the Detroit three automakers um, that lasted for about six weeks. So, you know, in 2019, the strike lasted 40 days. Um, and in our analysis, you, you know, certainly the strike, um, a, a company-wide strike like that would be very disruptive in the short term for Michigan. But we thought that Michigan could get back on the pre-strike trajectory in that scenario, that, you know, a strike wouldn't do lasting harm to the state economy. Um, but I, what I worry about is, well, if a, if a strike drags on a lot longer than that, or if it involves more workers um, and, and is you know, more acrimonious, well, what does that mean for the state economy? So you know, I think um, in the scenario that we analyzed, you know, which was six weeks at a single automaker, um, you know, Michigan's economy, you know, uh, we, we expect it to be resilient enough to, to get through that, even though it would be very you know, tough in the short run. Um, but, you know, I worry if we saw something, you know, a lot more severe than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us do have concerns about that. Why a lot of us are paying very close attention to what's happening here. You mentioned, of course, that uh, even right now we're seeing some effects from this. Of course, workers who are on strike uh, don't have quite as much disposable income to use in the city of Detroit. And I know you've done a lot with your group in terms of forecasting uh, the city's economy. And one of the things I noticed in your report is you mentioned the potential issues that uh, we might have in our local economy if there were a strike. Can you give us a little bit of your analysis on how the general economy in Detroit is doing, what the forecast is, and how this strike plays into that from your research? Sure. You know, uh, Detroit's economy is recovering still, you know, from, from the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the pandemic really poses a, a big challenge for downtowns all across the country uh, because of remote work. And Detroit is not exempt, you know, from, from that challenge. So, you know, uh, the, the reality is if, if, you know, you can do, if, if you're a professional and you are, say, going downtown, you know, three days a week and working from home two days a week, 
well, that's, you know, 40% fewer, you know, lunches out that you might, you know, not do your dry cleaning downtown, you know, it, it does affect um, the downtown economy. So, you know, that's a challenge. And then another challenge uh, for Detroit's economy is high mortgage rates, which, you, you know, are hurting the mortgage industry. And, and you know, Detroit does have, a, you know, a pretty big mortgage industry. So that's, um, you know, another headwind for Detroit. Um, and of course, you know, depending how the, the strike plays out, it, you know, it, it's that that's going to be a challenge for the city economy. Um, that being said, you know, we do expect Detroit's economy to keep recovering and to keep growing. Uh, so, you know, if, if you look back at the pre-pandemic trend, you know, Detroit, you know, was on a positive trajectory coming out of the bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, we do expect growth to continue. So, uh, you know, we're crossing our fingers that the strike doesn't, um, you know, leave lasting scars on the Detroit economy. Right, right, right. Again, we're speaking with uh, Gabe Ehrlich of the University of Michigan, an economist. I would like to, before I let you go, we've been touching a lot on Detroit. This is Detroit today and southeast Michigan. But I would like to get some insight from you. Uh, how much does this impact the U.S. economy also? What type of effects are we looking at between the difference between us here locally in the U.S. generally? And what are the stakes here? Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you asked that because, you know, a point that we like to make is this is not just a Michigan story. Um, you know, in our analysis, Michigan is the is the most affected state. But depending on the scenario and, you know, how you slice the numbers, Michigan only accounts for about a quarter of the job losses, um, you know, from, from the strike. Uh, it, so, you know, it, it is a national story depending, you know, that's thinking about, you know, company wide strikes. But, um you know, so depending on the strategy and exactly how the negotiations go, um, so it does affect the national economy. Though, uh, I don't expect the strike on its own to tip the national economy into a recession. And you know, we get that question sometimes. Um, the reality is just that the auto industry just isn't as big as it used to be. You know, relative to the size of the national economy, on its own, I, I don't think it will. You know. Uh, cause a recession. But there are a couple of other speed bumps coming up for, for the economy, potentially, um, as we you know get into the end of the year. Um, we have a potential shutdown at the federal government. Uh, and we have the resumption of uh, student loan repayments. Mm. And so when you put all of those together, you know, there are a few speed bumps economically coming up uh, at the end of the year. I don't expect a recession um, to, to result from it. But, you know, it's, it's there are certainly some risks out there. Gabe, the are you, is one of them. Gabe, are you advertising to come back on Detroit today to discuss those issues <laughs> when they pop up? Uh, always happy to always happy to talk. All right. Well, then we're going to have to do it, but that's going to end it right there. Gabe <laughs> Ehrlich right. of the University of Michigan, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. When we continue, another big issue here is income inequality, specifically references to the amount that CEOs are making with these record profits compared to the rise or the lack thereof, I should say, of regular workers. How does that fit in? What does it mean for our economy? We'll take a look at that and more when we continue on Detroit Today. It's Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin in for Stephen Henderson today on the show, taking a look at our economy. And right now we're going to pivot into the effects of income inequality, which has been on the rise from all the numbers that we see out there. Before we get into that, I do want to remind you that some WDET workers are members of the UAW. 
as we cover this topic. Uh, As I was mentioning a little bit earlier for nearly a week now, the UAW has been on strike seeking a new deal from the big three automakers. In support of their argument, Sean Fain often cites the record profits and bonuses for CEOs that they have been receiving uh, as well. But while regular workers, they haven't been able to share in these gains. So, How does this look for us, and what does income inequality really mean in the face of our economy here generally, as well as our society at large? We want to take a look at that right now, and to help us do that, I am joined by Josh Bivens, the Chief Economist for the Economic Policy Institute. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here also, because this is a topic that I see come up on the periphery a lot with these negotiations, but generally speaking for us in America uh, with rising income inequality. But to start, I think I hear even more about wealth inequality. So I'd like to just have you explain for us the difference between income inequality and wealth inequality before we get started into this conversation. Sure. So I would say like income inequality is um, sort of how the differences in the rates of growth of what people earn over a given year. So your income is your salary, what you earn in a year. It's like how much money you make over a given period of time. Wealth inequality is like the stock of everything you've been able to save and invest from that flow of income over those years and how unequal that is between people. And so that's just measured at like a single point in time. So if you have one person who makes $100,000 per year, another person makes $50,000 per year, you've got that level of income inequality. But then over 20 years, if that income inequality persists, that person who made the higher income is also going to have saved and invested and have a lot more assets in year 20 than the person who made less. And so there's going to be a lot of wealth inequality between them two. Yeah. Well, so then I could see how if you're making more income, that would lead to an increase in wealth inequality. But theoretically, income inequality shouldn't really be increasing or decreasing, I would think. So what's causing this? Well, first of all, Uh, What does the rise in income inequality look like right now? Is it really happening? And if so, can you show us how it's happening? So it's definitely happening. I mean, I think there's a bunch of ways to measure it. I think one of the most sort of you know clean ways to show the trend is if you just look at something like the share of total income in a given year in the U.S. economy that ends up in the top one or the top 10 percent of households. We've had periods in history, like a 30-year period after World War II, where that share was very stable. And it was low in historical terms. And so basically over that 30-year period, the top 1% every year would make about 10% of their total income. So they earned more than their share relative to population, but it was stable and it was relatively low in historical perspectives. Today, after like 40 years of pretty steadily rising inequality and having the top 1% grow even faster than everyone else, their share of total income has pretty much doubled. It's closer to 20% of total income now gets taken home by the top 1%. And so that's one way to measure it. And it turns out, like, any way you cut the inequality data, should I look at the top 1%, the top 0.1%, the top 10%, um, by any measure, that share of those top-end groups has been rising over time in terms of total income that they're claiming. Mm -hmm. And is this a natural phenomenon, or is it a result of policy decisions? Definitely think it's the result of policy decisions. I mean, I would say if you look at the long sweep of history on this, it's super interesting. Um, Like in the early 1900s and 1920s, the roaring 20s, um, you saw levels of 
income inequality that kind of looked like today, like the top 1% was taking close to 20% of income. And then there was this radical equalization of incomes that resulted due to World War II, and then a bunch of policy choices we made after World War II. And those policy choices mostly resulted in the bargaining power and leverage of the broad swath of workers in the U.S. economy having a lot of power relative to capital owners and their employers. So we fostered the growth of unions. We had a federal minimum wage that grew relatively quickly over time and really kept that wage floor rising. We really targeted very low rates of unemployment as an explicit um, target of policy. And I would argue that that policy mix is what kept income inequality um, very low and stable for those 30 years. Starting in the late 1970s, we started to dismantle all of those bulwarks to sort of typical workers' power. And I think the result has been that rise in inequality. And I think the clearest evidence of that is if you look at where the inequality came from, um, it really came from the labor market. It came from the fact that wages for like the bottom 80% of workers just stopped rising as fast as every other income stream in the economy. And so I think that labor market and that labor market power and the effect of policy is really the source of the rise of inequality. Mm. We're speaking with Josh Bivens, the chief economist for the Economic Policy Institute. We're going to loop in another voice here to round out the conversation. But first, I was going to ask this next question, my next question, but uh, we got a caller who will probably do a better job than I could even do with it. Wardell and Jefferson Chalmers in Detroit. Go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is this. is the ratio amount between the uh, worker and the executive. It seems like at, at, at one point it would be 10 times as much if the worker made 30000 you know, then the executive would make 300000 know, at, at 10 times as much. But it seems like now it's gotten much more than that. It looks like the work the executive are making now is, is much more than, than, than 10 times as much. It's 20 or 30 or 40 times as much. But it looks like if you keep it at a certain amount, then you, you can see the proportion of that to come out to what's fair for executives who do deserve, you know, a, a substantial yeah. amount of uh, weight. Yeah. You know, Wardell, I really appreciate that. To put a pin on it, when I was preparing for the show, I mean, I was seeing numbers from the 1960s where a lot of folks would say we we're doing well economically uh, at 20 to 1 was the ratio maybe for a CEO to average worker. I'm seeing numbers as high as 300 to 1 now and beyond in terms of that ratio. What's a fair ratio out there, Josh, uh, from what you've seen and, and what you report in terms of being healthy for our economy? Yeah, I will just take this opportunity to do a quick uh, plug. We just today released cool. a paper at EPI, epi.org, on CEO pay and exactly that ratio, updating it um, for the last year of data and your characterization and your callers is exactly right. We have a ratio in there from 1965, and it's basically between 15 and 20 to one in terms of how much more CEOs make the ratio of CEO pay to typical worker pay. And in the latest year, it is between 250 and 350, depending there, you can measure CEO pay different ways, but it is risen by a factor of more than 10. Um, in terms of what is fair, you know, I think that's a really tough one. I think your point that you made is a really key one, though. You know, it was as recently as 1989, that ratio was only a fifth as high as it is today. 
And it's not like economic growth has exploded since 1989. In fact, it's actually been very sluggish over the same period that we saw rising inequality. It wasn't like we saw this big rise in economic efficiency as a result of that. And it's sort of, well, we made the pie a lot bigger more quickly, but people slice. No, we made the pie grow even more slowly, just more unequally at the same time. So I don't quite know what's fair. I do know this stratospheric CEO pay has not bought us anything in Mm -hmm. terms of a more efficient or faster growing economy. Economy, so I'd love to see it, you know, quite reduced in the name of fairness. You know, I appreciate that point, Josh. And I was also wondering what is fair and what the fallout for having rapidly rising in a income inequality is. I mean, I truly want to know, is it a bad thing? There might be some people who would tell us, well, wait a second. Why are you worried about what I'm doing? Pay attention to your own lot. So to help us answer that question, I brought in another expert. We've got Luke Schaefer, the Associate Dean for Research and Policy Engagement at the School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Luke, welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here, too, because it is something I've been thinking about in terms of rising income inequality. Is it something that we should be concerned about? Because people often reference it, but it seems like maybe it's more of a psychological construct. I mean, if I'm able to pay for my bills, if I'm able to actually uh, put a roof over my head, should I be concerned about it? And if so, why should we be this concerned about rising income inequality? I think there can be uh, debates about how much an inequality uh, society will um, be be willing to have. And I think there are people who can make arguments that a certain amount of income inequality that um, sort of uh, creates um, uh, innovation uh, can be a positive thing. But when we have the levels of inequality that we have today, we can see how it uh, negatively impacts so many aspects of our lives. Uh, I'll give just like two examples that I think will be familiar to Detroiters. One is in the price of housing. So as income inequality rises, we can see more pressure being put on uh, the housing market, especially in the last decade or two when we've had a decline in um, in the, in the building of housing, uh, the more money that is at the very top uh, means that more of the housing can cater to them and you start to see sort of developments that are way out of reach, not just for folks at the very bottom, but uh, middle class folks too. And uh, that puts a lot of pressure and causes a lot of challenges for people in their pocketbook and uh, what neighborhoods people can live in. Another is really interesting work by a an economist at the Federal Reserve that shows as wage inequality grows in an, in an area, it actually causes folks uh, at the bottom to drop out of the labor market. Mm. So as I see my uh, sort of ability to make a wage that's commensurate with other people around me uh, deteriorate, it, it causes me to, you know, um, maybe a, be a little bit less likely to, to engage. And that is uh, maybe part of what's driving some of our, our challenges in the labor market, too. You know, Luke, I think those are two good examples, uh, things that you're talking about that we see in our data of the actual effects that it has on people and how it can uh, harm our productivity. One question I would have for you then is, do we have examples that you've seen in your research of places where income inequality is not nearly as high or in, in, in a different range, different ratio, and we've seen better outcomes? Do you have any specific examples? And can you tell me what those ratios are? 
Well, I'll sort of give uh, uh, two different kinds of answers. One is that uh, when you look around at the places in the United States that have the lowest poverty, that have uh, the longest life expectancies, that have the greatest rates of social mobility, um, those places that also have extremely low income inequality. So it seems to go along with a lot of other very positive things of, of families having the opportunity to succeed and uh, interestingly, a lot of those places are in the upper Midwest. I have a new book, uh, The Injustice of Place, and uh, we talk about this. So if you, if you go up into Minnesota and actually North Dakota, sort of throughout that region, you have these areas where inequality is low and, and people um, are healthier. And we looked around for a lot of the uh, characteristics that may be a part of explaining that. And it turns out these areas are also um, places of broad-based uh, property ownership. Uh, so if you get back to the earlier conversation about the difference between income inequality and wealth inequality, you know, partly you build wealth by saving uh, part of your income, but a lot of that wealth actually comes uh, generationally. And so the, the places that uh, we see in income inequality the lowest and, and families doing better on, on so many different metrics, actually have a very deep concentration of places uh, that were impacted by the 1862 Homestead Act. And so we have sort of broad-based ownership and broad-based sort of investment uh, across families um, through generations. So I think that's a really interesting um, statement about, you know, what kind of policies we might be pursuing. You know, Luke, I'm glad you brought up the 1862 Homestead Act because I had that on my bingo card for Detroit Today, today, and I think <laughs> that gives me a Yahtzee, so I'm getting a ham sandwich today. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, we do have a call right now, and I'm going to get to that in a moment as I loop you back into the conversation, Josh. We're talking about income inequality here on Detroit Today. I do want to loop in Harry right now. Harry in uh, Sterling Heights, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Yeah, it's a great topic. I'm not pro-labor, but I think these guys got a little complaint. you got Mary Barra making like $40 million a year, and these guys, what do they do for a living? You know, years ago you had Henry Ford, you had Lee Iacocca, you had uh, John DeLorean. They did something. You know, they made cars, and you could you could tell the difference every year. Now they're just making pickups and, and, and SUVs that, that just look the same every year. What do these people do to make $40 million a year? You know, I appreciate that question, Harry. It's something I was thinking about also because in pro sports, for example, your highest earners, they're going to make higher income, but they theoretically have a larger impact on the game. We have an idea of a rate replacement level player, for example. You know, if you don't have LeBron James, you just get the next guy that's available, your team's not going to be as good. I get it. Beyonce, Taylor Swift, they pack stadiums. I get it, right? The next performer you get, not going to pack the stadium the same way. Even lawyers, you're going to get better quality theoretically. The more you play for a lawyer, you say he's going to perform better in court. Awesome. But what do executives add for the kind of pay that they're receiving right now to these companies? I mean, compared to a replacement level executive, Josh, are we seeing real big impacts for these kind of profit maximization versus the next guy that you could get that's available? I guess a really good question, and that gets totally to the heart of it. And I think the answer is mostly no. I mean, if you look at sort of the market for CEOs, 
it just just does not look like a competitive labor market where the best person is getting the job and the pay is disciplined by the fact that there is somebody else out there who could probably do the job about as well. Instead, the pay is set by a bunch of corporate boards staffed by people who are largely picked by the very CEOs whose pay they're setting. And the people on those corporate boards get money to have this very easy job, and they generally don't want to rock the boat. And so it's mostly collusion, not like the search for what is the best person we can get for the cheapest wage, which is how most other labor markets work. And there's been a bunch of studies on this. Like a classic example is if you look at the CEOs of energy companies, their pay goes through the roof when the global price of oil rises. They didn't have anything to do with that. That's like set by whether or not China's growing fast, whether or not Saudi Arabia is pumping a lot of oil, and yet the way they have structured their pay contracts, their pay balloons, even though they've done nothing really to earn it. And then maybe the most interesting study, and it's a little grim, is they've actually someone actually looked at the effect of unexpected deaths of CEOs, like in car crashes or something like that, to see if anything bad happened to sort of the price of stock after those deaths. And really nothing when they were replaced. The stock price went on the same trajectory it was on before. So I think this question has been quite well studied, and the answer is no. There's nothing that says these CEOs are so valuable relative to the next person who could take the job that they are worth this kind of money. Mm, mm. Well, the phone lines are blowing up, gentlemen, and we do want to take a look at solutions. So if I can, I'm going to keep you both as we continue here on Detroit Today. The calls are coming in. We want to take a look at what may be solutions then with this picture on how we can hopefully fix, maybe reduce income inequality, help out everybody, improve our economy. We'll tackle those questions and more with you as Detroit Today continues. It's Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin in for Stephen Henderson, having a really fascinating conversation about the causes and effects of rising income inequality, what effects it has on our economy. And we're going to get into potential solutions for that later as we think about it in the backdrop of some of the issues facing the current labor stoppage facing the UAW as they're on strike in their negotiations with the big three automakers. To help us out with that conversation, we have Josh Bivens, chief economist for the Economic Policy Institute, as well as Luke Schaefer, the associate dean for research and policy engagement at the School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. But right now, as I mentioned, we are going to start getting to these phone lines. Uh, Before I get to the phones, though, we did have a caller call in who said um, this puts money in CEOs, uh, put money from CEOs to the common worker. That would give people buying power. It would be a win-win because people would have much more and they would be able to buy more things, which I understand that sentiment, right? Like a, a, a CEO you know, can't buy as many, won't buy as many cars and put them on the road as individuals, right? A CEO with 40 cars, you can't drive 40 cars at the same time. 40 people with 40 cars, they're going to have them on the road, putting gas in, maybe getting coffee, all of that stuff. That's important. My question from this, however, would be in terms of our negotiations now. We're talking about making changes in, in what we earn. Is there like a percentage level? If we're saying, hey, 
currently CEOs, these companies, they're making record profits. Could we do profit sharing or something like that to help solve issues of income inequality? Josh, is that something that's been on the table of like a profit sharing uh, method in order to, hey, if companies do better, workers should do better as well, and everybody should gain in the, the, the success? It's a really good question. Th- throughout you know, the past couple of decades, profit sharing occasionally comes up as sort of an issue. I, find, I think in theory, it sounds really good. I think it has some practical problems just in the sense that like, you know, you, you could have one worker making much more than another pretty identical worker mm. just from the luck of the draw about mm. the companies they happen to work for, how well they're doing. Like if you get stuck at a company whose management is terrible and doesn't make good profits, then your pay suffers. Um, and so there's a little bit of an issue there. And then I would also say, I, I think collective bargaining and union negotiations really are an implicit form of profit sharing. Yeah. But instead of having you know the workers' wages just whip up and down with, with the corporate profits, it's also trying to introduce an element of stability so workers can plan. But I think it really is an implicit form of, like you said, these companies are doing very well. Profits are up. They're obviously finding the money to pay the CEOs incredibly well. We're going to demand some implicit profit sharing by negotiating a good but stable wage for our workers. And so I think my you know first best solution is, is kind of that. It's collective bargaining. It's the implicit profit sharing. Um, that said, you know, I do find like explicit profit sharing, like contracts tying way to, is, is super intriguing. I think really hard to implement in practice. Before we get to the phones, I want to ask you as well, Luke, you deal in public policy. What levers would you pull to reduce income inequality? and allow workers to get a better share, especially when companies are doing well? Well, we actually don't have to be theoretical about this. We, we only have to go you know, all the way back to 2021. So in 2021, there was a suite of programs, uh, economic impact payments, people might remember, uh, the stimulus payments, as well as the expanded child tax credit, where for six months, uh, families with children uh, got $250 a month uh, because raising kids is expensive and society has a reason to help with that. And what 2022, what we learned was that those programs had a massive impact on reducing uh, income inequality. So when you took those things into account, uh, they had a huge impact in 2021. And it turned out that Families had a lot less trouble putting food on the table and credit scores actually hit their all time high in 2021. And when we let those things expire in 2022, that's when we started moving in the wrong direction again. All right. Let's go to the phones now. Melissa in Metro Detroit. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Uh, Good morning, Uh, Nick. uh, Hello to your guest. Right. So um, I wanted to mention that income inequality is a symptom of our system that's out of balance. Um, Prior to the uh, 70s, we had stakeholder capitalism where um, everyone was important, the employees, the customers, the executives, investors, um, and the community also. Um, But there's been a moral shift beginning since back in that time where nowadays it's shareholder capitalism. And that excludes all others. Profit is for executive pay and shareholder dividends to the exclusion of everyone else. And, 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 and what we can do about it is to first recognize it and then say, well, how did we get there? How mm. can we change that and uh-huh. rebalance it for everyone? I appreciate the points, Melissa. Always insightful in Metro Detroit. And we're going to move now as we got a lot of calls to Ron in Saline. Ron, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. 
Hey, good morning, guys. Um, and it's Celine, by the way. Thank but, you. Uh, it's okay. Uh, so I was just curious. Uh, Canada has like a, it's not universal health care, but at least there's basic health care for everyone. And you can, you know, obviously buy better packages. But how is, well, you know, this the income inequality look in Canada when you subtract, you know, big, you know, medicine, big pharma from the equation. Anybody want to jump in on that one? Good question, Ron. Well, it impacts uh, inequality in a couple of ways. Uh, the first is obviously these can be really big costs for for families. So even when wages go up, sometimes their you know healthcare dividends also go up, and it eats up a lot of that. It's a massive, you know, much bigger part of our GDP than it was uh, during that period that the previous caller was talking about a few decades ago. And that gets to the other part is that our, our healthcare system is an exorbitantly expensive and, and actually part of the driving of uh, some of those inequalities probably uh, wrapped up in it, right? Where um, our biggest employers in Michigan, you know, are lots of the healthcare systems are clustered there. There's a lot of money there, and and it, I think it's a very reasonable uh, question to ask, like, is that where we should be putting our money when um, there are other countries that seem to get better health outcomes for uh, a lot less? Yeah, Ron in Saline, not Saline, like the solution I use for my contacts. Thank you so much for that question and giving us the perspective over there in Canada as we move now to Michael in Detroit. Michael, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Thanks for taking my call. I think income inequality is just another word for capitalism. But with this specific topic, uh, comparing uh, UAW workers with the CEO is apples to oranges. I would more be interested in comparing UAW workers with other workers who have similar education and experience who don't work in that industry. Or even how many UAW workers leave their position because they can make more money somewhere else. Fair question. I think it ignores the race to the bottom, but I would present that question to you, Josh, that Michael in Detroit has. He said it's comparing apples to oranges. How are UAW workers doing compared to other similarly educated workers? Well, let me say one thing first in terms of inequality being another word for capitalism. Like we were a capitalist country 40 years ago and had much lower levels of inequality. So I don't think it's the case that it's impossible right. to have capitalism without hugely high levels of inequality. I think that's just a policy choice. On the specific question of um, comparing UAW workers to other workers with like sort of similar level of education credentials and things like that, um, roughly they earn more largely because of the union premium. Unions raise wages for workers, which is, you know, why they're valued by those workers. And I would say I'd flip that around too. Why is it only comparing UAW workers to their peers in the economy? Shouldn't we do the same thing for CEOs? I mean, CEOs are just pretty highly trained like lawyers and MBAs. What does their salary look like to other relative to other highly trained lawyers and MBAs in the economy? And we actually do that in the paper we released today. And they are, you know, paid orders of magnitude more. And so I think this logic of, you know, compare the UAW workers to other workers and figure out why that difference, that difference is unions. I like unions. I think that's why I like them is they raise workers' wages. But we should apply that same logic to the CEO pay and demand an explanation for why they make, you know, 10 times more than even other incredibly highly 
credentialed workers in the economy. Yeah, I, that is a very fascinating way to look at it, Josh, that I do appreciate here with that question. And thank you for your question as well as we move to Ed in Detroit. Ed, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Timely topic. I uh, was discussing a chart that's been circulating around online comparing CEO compensation in the Detroit Three to their peers, primarily Germany, uh, Japan, and I think maybe South Korea was thrown in there. And each of the Detroit Three CEOs is receiving more than $10 million U.S. per year. The non-U.S. peers are receiving less than $10 million, or less than $11 million, accurately, U.S. per year. I friend is not, I must say, a, a, a favor, favorable critic of unions, pointing out that most of what Mary Barra gets is, is stock benefit and other benefits. Said so she gets about $22 million a year in money, and the rest is stock. I'm wondering, if, it, it, assuming that's true, comparing it with the international peers, to what extent does the bulk of pay in stock encourage short-term thinking Mm. and not thinking about the community or not thinking about the survival of the company into the medium to long term. Also, I'm curious uh, what a journal organ published uh, your guest paper. It sounds like something I'd like to spend the weekend. uh, Yeah. Uh, processing. Yeah, we'll get definitely get to the both the of those, Ed. I appreciate that, Ed, in Detroit. And I love that question, right? This could have an impact on whether decisions are made at these companies for the benefit of the long-term growth of the company and our society versus the short-term growth at the expense of long-term. Josh, I present that question to you. Yeah, that's a great question. It's absolutely true that the bulk of CEO pay these days uh, is tied to the performance of the stock market. Um, I'd say a lot of the pay is actually in the form of stock options, which means when the stock price goes up, they can cash in and make some money. But when the stock price goes down, they're not hurt at all. And so that kind of asymmetric, you know, sort of reward structure is, you know, you could argue about how fair that is. I think besides, and so I do worry it, it does lead them to value anything that boosts the price of the stock in the short term, even if it's bad for the community or even if it's bad for the stock in the long term. Because again, when it drops, that doesn't hurt them. They only gain when it rises. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is, it's amazing. Like You could construct a CEO pay contract that accounted for the fact that the stock market overall rises over time and say, we're only going to reward our CEO for the rise in our stock price that is over and above the generalized increase in stock prices over this time. Um, they almost never do that. They basically construct the contracts that just reward the CEOs for anything that pushes up the stock of their company, even if it's not company specific, yeah. even if it just caused the entire stock market went up all at the same time. And so this sort of, you know, very intentional constructing of contracts that really rewards them for luck and any blip in stock prices, to me, is the biggest argument against the idea that linking their pay to stock price somehow means you're paying them for performance. You're not paying them for performance. You're paying them for stock price movements, which happen for a ton of reasons. Right, right. Uh, This next question, I think, is going to be nice for Luke as we're approaching the end of the show. John in Eastside, Detroit, you got about 30 seconds. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Well, I just want to thank the UAW, the Teamsters, IATSE, and all the rest of the unions that are pushing uh, pay for us and say that, 
I really hope that they succeed because all of us will succeed. And I just want to remind everybody the the definition of capitalist business is exploiting human beings to make lots of money, exploiting the customer, exploiting the employee so they can make lots of money. Is that the definition? That's not what I saw when I looked up the dictionary definition, John. But I hear your point there on the east side. We got about 30 seconds. Uh, I do want to loop you in, Luke, to see what would it mean if, for the rest of society generally if the union were to succeed or fail in their efforts? Well, I, I guess I'll just mention that, you know, what I heard in that call is just the thankfulness that the union has the workers' backs. And I think that's part of uh, what we're talking about is that uh, workers today want to feel like people are looking out for them. And they don't feel that when they see CEOs making so much. And they don't feel that, yeah. like that when they see government not um, playing a role. So I'm working on a new thing in uh, Flint, Michigan with Dr. Monahanna Atisha that is an unconditional cash transfer for families with infants. It's going to be the first time in the nation that we do this for every um, new family with a new baby. Um, And it's kind of a similar idea that we want programs uh, that look out for Yeah, absolutely. That's going to have to do it there. Josh Bivens, Chief Economist for the Economic Policy Institute, as well as Luke Schaefer for the Associate Dean of Research at the uh, University of Michigan School for Public Policy. Thank you guys much. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Program director is Adam Fox. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. The Detroit Today podcast is edited by Jack Philbrand. Support the podcast by supporting WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Just go to WDET.org slash give.